Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Sevilla King. Sevilla King runs a YouTube channel herself called A Quality of Existence. And on that YouTube channel, she explores the connection between the works of folks like Jordan Peterson, my friend John Verveke, Jonathan Pajot, who've also had on this channel, with the works of Robert Persig, who's the author of a really famous book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So this book explores what Persig would come to call the metaphysics of quality, which is a fascinating idea that deeply aligns with something like Verveke's um, relevance realization. And of course, you know, what all these, so many of these thinkers are talking about in the sense of meaning. It's a, it's a deep exploration. And in preparation for this conversation, I read uh, 70% of Zen and the Art of Mar- Motorcycle Maintenance. I was hoping to finish it, but I didn't quite get there before we had the talk scheduled. But it's really awesome to spend some time digging deep into Robert Piercing's thought, and then to get a chance to unpack it and connect it to all the ongoing conversations in the meaning community with Sevilla. Sevilla's had conversations with uh, Paul Vanderclay and Jonathan Pajot and and John Verbeke. So we share a lot of common ground in trying to map what's going on here. So it's a really fun conversation, diving deep into well, what is what does piercing mean by quality? How does it align with Verveke's model? How does it align with Peterson's model? How does it align with Peugeot's model? And where are those are actually in conflict and how do we resolve those conflicts? So if you're interested in those questions, highly recommend sticking around and joining my conversation with Sevilla King. Sevilla, welcome to the channel. It's a pleasure to get to speak with you. Um, you too, right? Paul Vanderclay recommended we talk a long time ago, and I know you've been kind of uh, one of the personalities in this corner of the internet, which I think is your, your, uh, your phrase for the, <laughs> the conversations that are ongoing. Uh, you've been on with John and Paul, John Verveke and Paul Vanderclay and, uh, and, um, and Jonathan Peugeot. So folks have also had the chance to speak to and gotten a lot out of, and we both got interested, I think in, in Jordan Peterson's work around the same time. Can you tell me when, when, when you really sort of dig into his work? Sure, and I'll give you um, kind of how it happened. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I was, I was looking for something. Um, I was, I'm, I'm a therapist, so I'm, I was, you know, studying certain people. One of those people was Viktor Frankl, and I was also getting interested in Jung. So, mm-hmm. with those two search, you know, those two search terms, mm-hmm. um, meaning and Jung, I came across Peterson, 
and you know just one lecture and this was of course in 2015 where he was okay. he, he was not famous at all it was before the 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 season <laughs> which was really amazing to see happen before my eyes you know because i'd already been following him for a couple of years so that was a very weird day when that happened i mean <laughs> i think that was 2016 so i had been listening to his lectures and i was totally hooked i mean he's just such a you, you know mm -hmm. i don't even need to explain and um right about that time you know i was getting interested in some of these types of things and um peterson had this notion you know that that, that the world is made of meaning mm -hmm. And he has a very early video from 2013 that explains that. And he actually has mentioned this. He's explained it in the same way. And it comes up frequently. You know, the world is meaning. It's a dropping off place, et cetera. That's come up in the last. Did you see the Bishop Baron? John I did, Baron? yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. It will yeah. be another rich source for us to, to, to dig into. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that, for some reason, when I was exploring that concept, and he hadn't put Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance on his reading list yet, I don't think. Um, I had had it around and I'd meant to read it. And so there was some kind of suggestion that that, that concept was kind of was kind of broadened by, or the same type of concept that Zen's in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So I read that and of course became totally hooked because this was all coinciding, you know, this, this way of seeing reality described in that book and that Peterson was describing and that is kind of, you know, percolating in this corner and very much manifesting in this corner at this point, you know, um, was just became very interested, interesting to me. So I just, I was so hooked on, on Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that about a, you know, about six months after studying it and reading it and rereading it, I started that channel in order to kind of force myself to put some discipline into trying to understand it. Because if I had to present things and I had to be at least partially coherent, even if, you know, I couldn't get it all right to start with, and I still don't have it all right. I mean, it's, it's a hard, it's a very simple metaphysics, but implementation can be pretty difficult, especially on the, in the moral, in the, you know, in the moral levels. Um, so yeah, that's how, so how I started the channel and just here I am. It's <laughs> very cool. Uh, excuse me for one second. So you went from, from Peterson to Piersig. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting also that you're part of the, like the pre C16 generation. I was just after the, the C16 thing that I got into Peterson. Um, you know, my first encounter with him was on Joe Rogan, right? So that right. was, uh, I think maybe a month after. Right. That was directly after. Yeah. It was very, very, very soon after. And, you know, he had like 10,000 followers before that happened, which is actually quite a lot on YouTube, mm -hmm. but it's still, you know, not, a, not an internet celebrity. Um, so I'm curious a little bit about your, your background as a therapist. Has that been your career path? Like, uh, since the beginning, or is it something that came into later? And why was it that you were seeking something that, that Peterson had to offer when you came across his channel? Well, um, I was, uh, no, I can't, I, I became a therapist about, I, I started all that process about 10 years ago. Okay. So, you know, it's a second career for sure. I was an antiques dealer and art restorer before that. Okay. And, um, and so I was just really trying to get some concepts and I had, I had, I had happened upon Viktor Frankl. Do you know that? that? I'm, I'm familiar. I haven't read um, Man's Search for Meaning yet. It's definitely on my reading list, but I haven't got there yet. Well, it's, it, the, the premise is that 
you have, you know, it's about free will, basically. It says in the worst of circumstances, you have a choice to make the best possible decision. And it's all about him being in the concentration camp and absolutely being completely hopeless. And that if you have something to live for, even if, you know, even if it's a long shot, because the chances of them getting out of there in the best case scenario was like 20% for the ones who are really resilient. Mm -hmm. But if you hold on to this meaning, if you hold on to this thing that you're living for, this is going to improve your odds and it's going to make things better for whatever circumstance you're in. And then, then he he was freed. He was only, I think he was only in the only in for a year and he uh, came to America and started, you know, logotherapy, which is based on meaning and, and choice. And, um, oh, said logotherapy. Yeah. I hadn't heard that term before. Uh, um, Frankl uses logos as, yeah, yeah. as a, um, you know, as a substrate of his of his therapy, which which is meaning. I mean, you know, from this corner that the the term logos is so. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're continually trying to understand what it means, and some people have a very concrete uh, idea, especially the the folks in the religious space, and then the rest of us kind of, you know, try to figure it out on our own terms, and and so that's how he used it. So he he used it as a synonym for meaning. Synonym for meaning, yeah. Interesting. So, um, okay, and so you found Frankel and Young, and then and then we're, we're looking for somebody to really get a deeper understanding of those approaches. Have you found that? I'm I'm curious. Have you found those that, that fruitful in your your therapeutic practice, like bringing in these Petersonian ideas, or you know the the stuff that he's brought together and, uh, and his predecessors like Frankel. Um, because obviously, Frankel, you know, what you're saying is, is very, you can see it has a direct link to the world as described by Peterson. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the idea of, of being able to make a choice in your life, because a lot of people, you know, who seek therapy don't feel like they have any choices. And Peterson, you know, that is, it's a lot of what he's talking about is methods that he's used to help people, you know, get yourself um, get yourself established in certain ways, have, but yep. the sense of responsibility, the sense that you have agency in the world, if you make the decision um, to, you know, implement that agency, I think is such a powerful idea. I mean, it's, it's you yeah. know, like it hasn't been so popular, but, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's a few different directions that, that branch off of that, but, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is something that's been really interesting to me. And I mean, that's, a, and, and a lot of what it is, is as my understanding is essentially helping people get rid of cognitive distortions that make them focus on things that are outside of their control mm -hmm. instead of focusing on the things that they control, which is basically stoicism, right? It's, it's the ancient philosophy of stoicism. And I actually think that parkour is kind of like it's, it's a, it's an embodied, it's an embodied cognitive behavioral therapy, therapy, right? It's a, a way of going into the world and intentionally cultivating the capacity to have options and to know how to choose them and to become somebody who, who can make choices mm -hmm. and who can recognize the truth and who can, um, who can take responsibility for their actions. Mm -hmm. So hey, that's, yeah, go ahead. Collaborate on parkour a little bit more in that framework. Yeah. So like, 
when I, f- so I'll tell you, I, you may have heard me talk about this, but um, when I first found par- uh, found Peterson, I was, I'd been doing parkour for maybe 13, 12 years at that point. Um, it's hard to tell the time on anymore. I think about 12 years and I was a teacher. I'd been teaching parkour since the very beginning. And I had started teaching my own method um, of movement called Evolve Move Play, which is essentially, I think of it as like the parkour base code, but then expanded in its its operations. So instead of just moving over obstacles, we move with other people and we practice moving objects around and we move primarily in the natural world. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was working a lot with these ideas around how we, how we become a self-worth esteeming. That was, that was one way that I framed this um, and how recognizing the problem of, of living in these environments where we have these hyper stimulating distractions and, you know, there's this, this fault in the capitalist system where it, it, it can prioritize or can, can reward anything that sort of um, builds capital, even things that are really negative to, for, for human well-being. Mm-hmm. And I had noticed that when I taught people, I had, you know, acquired a lot of scientific and technical information and I could break down movements talk about the, the body, the, the muscles and the joints involved and, you know, what I wanted people to do. But when I talked from that scientific perspective, or when I talked, you know, I talked about a study that showed this, or it tended to, it, I could see that it demonstrated my authority to my students, but it didn't compel them. It didn't, it didn't create transformation in them that I was looking for. Um, but when I started talking, telling stories about my life um, or my experiences within parkour or experiences related to it, you'd see something else turn on in them. Like I talk about this idea of like seeing the student's eyes shining when you're teaching. And that tells you that you're, you're in the right place. You're saying the right thing. And so I kept having that experience when I went into the story aspect. And so I started getting fascinated by the idea of what is a story? What is a narrative? Why, why are some narratives compelling? Right. And how do we become a better storyteller and tell stories that have more power to transform people? And so when I first saw that Joe Rogan interview, like I am more aligned with where uh, Peterson was coming from politically. And that was interesting, but it was when they kind of moved away from the politics and started talking about the archetypes and young and, in this maps of meaning that, you know, my mind was blown. And then I was just addicted to that, uh, to his stuff for, for months. Um, and I had this realization that the, the idea that we have this, this reflex to orient towards what's meaningful and then to, to pursue, to confront the challenge of chaos in order to extract something good out of it. I realized that's essentially what we were doing within uh, within movement practice, right. And parkour in particular, right. We're really creating these little concrete kind of dragons that we can, that we can, that we can confront. And then when we do that, we become more courageous and you do it sequentially, right. With, you know, graded exposure. So just like you might show somebody who has a irrational fear of spiders, right. A picture of a spider, right. And then maybe the spider in a cage, right. That's, that's a graded exposure, right? Are you someone who's afraid of elevators? You know, you show them a picture of an elevator and then you have them stand near an elevator. You're always overcoming fear and parkour by 
exposing yourself to a version of it that you can handle. And then you become a person who has a better understanding of your own relationship with fear and of how your emotions work, what's happening within you. Um, and also maybe you start to understand what feels good. What is good, right? What, what is something, what is quality to you? So, um, I hope that, I hope that, uh, lays it out for you. Oh, no, it's great. It's, it's like, and, and I've seen, I've seen some of, you know, your videos, some of the things that you have people doing are really challenging. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of scary and it's very, yeah. it's admirable. So it reminds me, you're, it reminds me, I don't think you're, I don't know if you're here in Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance yet. Are you at chapter 29 where they're kind of, de where he deconstructs how, you know, the, the history, the ghost of rationality? I think so. He's talked about the ghost of rationality quite a bit up to this point. Um, the point I'm at right now, they've just entered Idaho um, on the motorcycles and they're, um, what is, I'm trying to remember the most recent thing that he was talking about. Um, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't, I can't recall exactly. I don't know which chapter I'm on. Do you know where it is in, in terms of his discussion of quality? Um, he's, he's talked quite a bit about it. Um, and I, I mean, like, I think I know what he means by quality now, you know, he's talked about quality as being, you know, related to the Tao, which was interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. Right. I got to the point where, you know, I was, it was interesting because I was like, he's, this sounds like Taoism. He's just saying Tao, right? It's like, yeah. you just take the word quality out here and put Tao in. And then yeah, yeah. three paragraphs later, he's like, yeah. And then I discovered that this is, that this is the Tao, right? Um, or then Phaedrus discovered that that was the Tao. That's right. Um, well, in, in later in the book, I'm going to spoil it for you a little bit. Sure. Go ahead. Point. Um, because this is a book you're going to read. Yeah. So, you know, you probably read more than once. Uh, he gets to a point where um, where rationality is discovered and it's discovered in ancient Greece. I won't I won't go into too much detail because I don't want to spoil it too much for you. Yeah. Um, but so so there's a division that happens in ancient Greece, and I'll just leave it at that. But yeah. before the rationality develops, there is a way of understanding. Um, the relationship with reality, which is arete, which is excellence. And this is the pre-Socratic era, you know, before, before the rational era, let's just say Socrates and Plato, where rationality begins, there's this understanding of reality uh, that is based on excellence. Like you want to be, you know, the warrior, the hero, you want to be good at a variety of things. You want to be able to, you know, handle your domestic life and you want to be able to handle physical activity and you want to be able to do have certain skills and build things and be a warrior and be a warrior in certain in many situations, you know, just cultivating excellence as a thing. Yeah. And so it kind of sounds like that's what you, you know, when you're going back and pulling something out of the past, it sounds like it's arete. Virtue is a word that I use a lot, which I think is right. Good. Right. Actually, our attained virtue are the same, you know, it, 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 it turns out that virtue, that the, the original use of the word virtue is excellence, is our Yeah. So, so I think about, yeah, the virtuous life or the, the construction of the virtuous individual, or also another way that I think about it is the idea of like, um, becoming someone you would admire. Mm -hmm. What is it that you're admiring? What do you, what are you aimed at? Right. Um, and so 
yeah, that's the fundamental idea in some sense is that, that we have that ability. We have the ability to choose a quest towards the type of self that we'd like to be. And that when we do, uh, our lives become more meaningful and that there's, there's multiple layers to that, right? It's, I think that parkour is, a is a particularly powerful entry point, um, because it's embodied. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of the philosophical traditions and spiritual traditions that we have, have, have this element of Gnosticism almost where they have rejected the body and that two worlds mythology, right? We are, we've been stuck in this two worlds mythology that, that, that blinds us to the fact that, that excellence starts in the body, right? Um, that quality, um, is, is something that's experienced in an embodied sense. Before we go any further, can you give a brief definition for, for the audience of what, of what Persig means when he uses the term quality? Cause it was, until I read Zen and Marvel cycle maintenance, it didn't, it didn't really make, I didn't get it, you know? Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear you kind of expound on that for a second. So um, it gets, I, I'm, these days, I kind of see it through the frame of Lila, the next book. Okay. I'm going to jump ahead, and that, that is not a spoiler. Lila, he kind of codifies everything. So when you move on, to, uh, when you, I hope you read Lila. If you do, yeah. you know, there's going to be a lot of explanation. But um, quality itself is reality, is the totality of reality. Mm-hmm. Because if you could say meaning, you could say value. This is how reality even exists at all. Because otherwise, it couldn't. You know, you just have the. You just have. I guess you could say potential. I guess if you're using the frame, um, this is in the metaphysics of, of uh, Jonathan Peugeot as well. Mm-hmm. You just have unmanifest potential, and it takes something. It takes spirit to manifest that potential into patterns. So quality itself is the totality of everything. Then there is dynamic quality, which is the spirit, you could say. And then there's um, static quality, which is the analog of the quality spirit it creates. And, and let me just explain the, the creation, let's just say the, um, the mechanism of creation. So you have unmanifest potential at the beginning, let's just say, or, or, or latent. Um, dynamic quality is, it's a, it, they are patterns. Well, let me, let me, let me go back a little. So let's just say, so the metaphysics of quality is an evolutionary, uh, is an evolutionary philosophy. It begins with Persig, it begins with the big bang. Okay. And so you have inorganic quality from the big bang. You have matter. Mm-hmm. You know, the very most, you know, the basic matter, I suppose you could say hydrogen. Um, as, as quality moves through, quality is always there. Quality is, um, dynamic quality is always there creating, moving, moving, just moving things towards freedom. So in the inorganic realm, you've got hydrogen, which, which bonds, which finds freedom. It finds quality. Quality is a driving force towards the better. What is better? Better is more freedom. Better is more agency. So individual hydrogen atoms can bond with each other and become more complex. That complexity eventually 
ratchets up to biological quality, which is actually an emergent thing. It's not a direct, you know, you, you can't make a, you can't look at all the atoms and everything and, and get biological quality. You've got life, which is a dynamic factor that, that exists between them. And after, you know, biology, then that ratchets up into the social level and that becomes, that becomes ephemeral. You can't measure that anymore. It's not, you know, objects in the world that becomes subjective, let's say, that enters the subjective realm. And after that is intellectual quality. So quality itself is the totality of everything always going somewhere. Um, but but Persig divides it up into, the, you know, the metaphysical reality, like Peugeot's heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he divides it up in that way. So that's, um, I guess that's the best way I can, I can describe quality. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to kind of go back and forth on that for a second, because I think like this, the conversation I've had with Peugeot, you know, has been about how we kind of balance a worldview that, that, that's sort of patterned down, right? Uh, emanationist versus um, emergent. It comes yeah. from the bottom up, right? So Peterson's kind of mostly a bottom-up thinker, right? He, he really does try to root his stuff in uh, a rational and um, evolutionary worldview, right? But you, you come to this, 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 this problem, which is that we, we've been kind of stuck in the, sub, the object and the, the subject-object divide, right? There's, there's objective things, which are material. And if you if you become very, very devoted to that, it really breaks into a very strange thing, which is that only material things are real. Mm-hmm. But we, we can't really operate off of the idea that only material things are real. It, it can't be the case that, you know, um, this microphone is real, mm-hmm. but the thoughts in our heads are, are, are not real at all. Right. Um, and then, so then there's this element of that that's subjective, right? It's, it's something that's experienced by a subject, but science, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to think about how far we went down the pathway of, of almost trying to get rid of that. Because if you look at, you know, you're, you're a psychiatrist, um, or, or psychologist, um, but you know, the, the history of behaviorism, right? <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Um, in behaviorism, the idea was that, you know, that we should completely ignore internal subjective states mm-hmm. because they were not scientifically accessible. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard the joke about, um, what does the behaviorist say after sex? Oh, I've heard it. I can't remember. Tell me. It was good for you. How was it for me? <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> right. right. So, so th- this becomes somewhat absurd, uh-huh. right? So, so Peterson, you know, he, he asked the question, well, what if the world is, you know, what is it? the world is, is what matters rather than matter, right? Mm-hmm. That's something he would say, sure. which is really very phenomenologist too, right? It's very much like, like Hegel and Husserl and Heidegger and Husserl, sorry. Uh, Heidegger and Husserl and Merleau-Ponty, where you're talking about the idea that we can't, we can't, if science takes away our own experienced reality of the world, then then somehow it's failing. It's not working, right? We have to be able to see the world in a way that homes and makes sense of how we experience it. So 
so Peterson, as I understand, he, he talks about this idea that we have this orienting uh, instinct, right? There's an innumerable set of things out there that we could focus on, but we have an instinct that helps us focus on certain things. And that's recognized, I think, you know, dopamine and different, uh, neurological systems. And from an evolutionary perspective, we, we're designed to focus on things that are salient to our specific survival needs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go deep into like Verveke stuff, you get into relevance realization, right. which is which is very similar to, for, to Persig's qual- um, quality, the dynamic quality. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I think that Peterson's meaning and orienting reflex and, Absolutely. and the orienting reflex. If you think about, if you think about the orienting reflex, what are you orienting towards? Mm-hmm. You're orienting towards what's better. If you look at that mat little exactly. diagram that, that Peterson has, it's that little egg, unbearable future, you know, un- unbearable present. Un- unbearable present, uh, ideal yeah. future. Yeah. 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 And that exactly. orienting is always present. That That is a description of dynamic quality of, of, of going towards quality. Yes. Of seeking the good. Seeking the good, seeking what's better. And sometimes seeking what's better is getting away from what's bad. Mm-hmm. So quality, there's, you know, you're you're going towards high. You're going towards quality and going away. You know, you're doing, going towards high quality and away from low quality. Yeah. So our our consciousness, in some sense, has to arise from a motivational state yes. that that is um, that has a a positive and negative valence. That's the term that that Peterson uses in Maps of Meaning. So that's this. I think is essentially what what quality is. Um, I think it's it's easier for me to understand it once it's framed like that, right? That you have, that you have from an evolutionary perspective, really at the very base of everything is a, is a self-replicating organism that's autopoetic, right? Because it can, it can seek out the, the means of its own, own growth, right? Or yeah. own uh, replication, um, and in order to do that, it has to have this, these two poles. It has to have an aversive and appetitive pole. Absolutely. So we, we have, you move away from things that damage you and you move towards things that feed you. And the difference between fire and an amoeba is that fire doesn't have the ability to will itself towards fuel and away from, 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 you know, water or something that can kill mm-hmm. it. But an amoeba does mm-hmm. like that's the fundamental quality of life. Well, I mean, I think Persig would say that that, that um, affective valence, you could say, the valent, you know, the, the perception of valence itself goes all the way down to the lowest level. And that's, I think, what, what makes, you know, if you're looking at it, and it, you, what, because what you're talking about is what Persig would call the biological level. Yeah, yeah. Biological quality means survival. Mm-hmm. But you've got a lower level, you know, which is why I wanted to lay out the, you know, the four levels to, you know, because you, because quality runs through the whole thing. Like at the lowest level, you've got sort of something like affective response when a hydrogen atom wants to combine and become more complex so it can have more agency. That, that, that's, that's an interesting idea. That's, that's one I, I have a trouble with right at the start. Right. So we, I think that that's something that most sort of most of the scientific worldview would reject at this point, right? Putting agency below the level of the, of the biological. It certainly would. I think there are pretty serious physicists 
who who do contemplate the idea that consciousness is somehow constituent of reality on a deeper level and that maybe all of the universe is somehow um somehow in a dance with consciousness perhaps um i always get a little bit wary when when that kind of um discussion comes up because i think I see people fall into traps there, right? Hey, you know, Peterson's talked about it too, right? You know, everyone, everyone who's not a quantum physics uh, physicist who starts um, starts citing quantum physics, it's um, it's generally a, they're generally about to say something that's probably not true, right? Um, or probably unjustifiable uh, at, at, in a certain way. And quantum physics is very difficult to understand, even for the people who who specialize in it. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, I don't know what to say about that, but I, you know, I can, I just can conceptualize it at the level of the biological, right? Like that, that's, that's very easy for me now within the level of like hydrogen atoms. I, I see it in some senses, like you could see the universe as a process of complexification, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's a, you know, a Verveke term would be sure. complexification is a process that, uh, that increases, you know, diversification and then unification. Mm -hmm. So we start with, with just hydrogen atoms and hydrogen atoms are, are not very diverse. Right. Right. Um, But then they combine into other structures and then they, um, you know, more other elements are born out of them. And those other elements become systems like stars that have, you know, these complex relationships, right? A star has has different ele- structural elements to it, and then a star is part of a star system mm-hmm. where all of these other other things are are in relationship to it. So you can kind of see that as a as a process of of of, of complexification, and of course, somehow all of that gives rise to life, and then life gives rise to intelligence, and that gives rise to us, which are the 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 mimetic creatures. Well, you're missing a level in in Persig. Persig would say that life gives rise to social patterns. Mm-hmm. Social patterns give rise to intelligence because everything we think, you know, like imagine if you were just left out in the woods. Yeah. Somehow you did. There would be nothing in your head that is like what's in your head now. And, yeah, yeah. And I mean, so, so what happens, I think a lot with science is, you know, and is that the, the social level kind of gets discounted because these social patterns are what allow us, the social level allows us to manage biology and to go into the, you know, to go into the realm of intellect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's in between. And so um, in science, there's a, direct, there's a direct line between matter and, and, and intellect, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the way that, for example, um, the way that science sees as the most valid way of describing reality is, is at present quantum physics, and they're starting to run into some problems with it. Yeah. The social level has these patterns that orient us as to how we think, how we, you know, how we've learned to value things. And, um, and I think, well, one thing I wanted to mention is this is, I, I think what Jonathan Peugeot is looking at is how how our understanding of social patterns mirror 
what you might find in quantum physics or what you might find in, you know, Newtonian physics. There's that whole hierarchy thing. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you expand a little bit more on that. So how is the hierarchy that we see within the social world um, mirrored or how do the two things elucidate each other compared to the, the hierarchies we see, say, in, in, um, in physics? Um, in order, it, we're going back again to what is what allows for the most freedom, what allows for the most agency. So mm-hmm. in physics, combining, let's just say combining in a certain way allows for more freedom. You know, the atoms doing what they do to combine in a certain way allows for more freedom. In the social world, banding together, for example, you're much stronger than you would be alone. Mm-hmm. And so social patterns become, you know, really important. There's, there's a, and what Persig would say, let me relate evolutionary biology to the social level, yeah. to the best of my ability. Yeah. Um, so you have, and, and each level will, will be composed at, you know, be supported and composed by the lower level. So in the social level, you've got biological support where biological, biological man, let's just say, and by, and by the, and man is not purely biological. He's, he's biological, social, and intellectual, but you have the social level being supported by biology, by our biology, by our proclivities, you know, and, and evolutionary biology has a tendency, I think, and I may be wrong about this, so correct me. It, it has a tendency to attribute most social behavior to earlier forms of social behavior and that they're just expansions, elaborations of them. Um, well, I think that, you know, all of uh, most science is, is trying to, uh, is trying to operate within a, a kind of linear causal mm-hmm. worldview, right? So whatever comes after has to be, has to have determinants that come before. Mm-hmm. So we're always looking for and trying to understand the determinants that come before. So we, we, I mean, there is obviously the idea of emergence and the fact that the things that, you know, that combine to create this next thing, um, we, we can't predict what happens at that level. Right. Um, but we're always looking for these antecedents. So, you know, it's very important to scientists, for instance, that there's, that there's a gestural language that we see in chimpanzees that's shared in many of its, um, in many of its particulars with human beings. And then and there's areas in which it's not right. And that's, that's something that's really a deep source of information. So, um, trying to, so chimpanzees gesture, but I don't think they point if I remember correctly, like the idea that you can control somebody else's visual behavior mm-hmm. with your finger doesn't seem to have been evolved in chimpanzees, if, if I'm remembering this correctly. But there's something very interesting and has been pointed out about scientists about the fact that human beings have white sclera, mm-hmm. so yep. chimpanzees don't. A chimpanzee um, doesn't necessarily, or they haven't evolved to pay attention to the, the attention of those around them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very fundamental difference between a human and a chimpanzee. Human beings are highly, highly attuned to the attention of those around them. And that's facilitated by the fact that we have eyes that, that give away what we're paying attention to much more so than chimpanzees or gorillas or other, other apes. 
So I don't know if that's an answer to your question. Um, I hope I hope it elucidates some of my understanding of, of how evolutionary biology thinks about these things. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, I think I think in the metaphysics of quality, they would say that once you, you know, like the biology would support it. Like you have, you have very similar patterns. Let's say so you have this, uh, you know, they have this. Um, you let's well, let's take pointing. Let's take yeah. being able to pinpoint like that, which is a human. That's a human social value. That's not that doesn't exist in the chimpanzee world. In the metaphysics quality, they would say that that pointing is a is a value of the social level, and it only exists on the social level, and yeah. it's not it's not um you know it's supported by this biological substrate, but it is in it is it's its own self, and I think where evolutionary biology makes the distinction from what you're telling me is is maybe where person would say now these things are social patterns they're no longer biological patterns they're supported by biology but these patterns themselves are social and they are going to go off in their own direction and create you know societies and create laws and create institutions and language and then you know from that sophistication you will get you will get the intellectual level. Yeah. So there's a, um, there is a whole kind of area of research called um, behavioral, uh, behavioral evolution. I think it's behavioral evolution. Um, but no, uh, there's a cultural evolution. Sorry. Cultural evolution. Simple. Uh, cultural evolution is applying Darwinian thinking to how, cultural forms develop. And the basic idea, you know, which is really, uh, you know, the kind of the most, the most um, well-known sort of articulation of this that's widely out there is Richard Dawkins' idea of the meme. The meme is a social, is a unit of transfer of social information similar to a gene, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that at some point, uh, human beings cross this Rubicon of, of symbolic behavior mm-hmm. where, where the selection process could happen at the level of, of, um, of ideas instead of at the level of biology. Alfred, uh, I think it was Whitehead who said, mm-hmm. you know, we think so that our ideas may die instead of us, right? And Jordan <laughs> Pearson loves to use that. The idea that, you know, a chimpanzee or not a chimpanzee, sorry, a, a mosquito will produce thousands of offspring, almost all of whom die. Whereas a human being will think thousands of thoughts, almost all of which result in no action in the real world. So we're essentially applying the Darwinian process to the contents of our own head. Um, and it, I highly, highly recommend if you haven't uh, to check out um, The Secret of Our Success by Joseph Henrik. If you want to get a deep dive into how evolutionary thinkers are, are conceptualizing the social aspect. That, that sounds good. Um, that's one of the biggest books that I've read in, in kind of helping my thinking over the last year. But he, so you, you've, you've used the term, uh, you've used the terms intellectual and intelligence kind of is the same thing. And I actually think they're two different things mm-hmm. because I think with intellectual, you're pointing at a lo- a way in which intelligence is applied that only becomes available once the social is available, mm-hmm. but that's, but intelligence doesn't have to be applied. Mm-hmm. 
socially, right? Chimpanzees are fundamentally more intelligent than dogs are, yeah. but they're actually not fundamentally that much more social. Um, they don't have this capacity. They don't have a massively higher capacity or uh, orders of magnitude, higher capacity for exchanging social information. But one of the things that Henrik demonstrates in that book, or he points to a lot of research that demonstrates this is that chimpanzees will outperform humans on many cognitive tests that don't involve cultural information. And sometimes human beings will, will, there's ways you can set up tests where human beings will get confused by, by trying to mimic behavior that's not relevant, whereas Mm -hmm. chimpanzees won't. (laughs) yeah that makes sense so the secret of our success is this capacity we have to mimic Mm -hmm. and that allows this selection to happen on at the social level of behavior and it's a fascinating it's you know he gives lots of examples of this of how you you said if i was stuck in the woods right i wouldn't uh you know i wouldn't have thoughts necessarily like i do but what he points out is i would just die Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. That human beings are very bad at, uh, at adapting to the environment without oh, yeah. the cultural toolkit. No, absolutely. We're, we're, we're embedded in the social level. Yeah. So oh, I, I think, I think you, you know, the use of the word intellect, the intellectual level means yeah. the level of ideas intellect mm-hmm. itself. I would say intelligence, you know, and, and, and again, I, I know I'm going to get some pushback on this, but intelligence itself is that quality seeking thing you could say it's indefinable i mean you, you've already come across in the book that quality cannot be defined yes but but the ability to ride quality let's just say you know is in t- intelligence and in this view you know that i'm espousing that goes straight to the bottom i mean that goes from from the big bang on because that directionality towards quality you could say is intelligence in this in this model you could say in an evolutionary model of course um intelligence probably arises i guess when um when when would it arise maybe maybe when you 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 get a uh some kind of creature in between something like an amoeba and something like a lizard, you know, somewhere in there. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. When, when would, so I mean, any, any living organisms in some sense of problem solving thing, right? Exactly. Intelligence is a kind of second order problem solving, right? So you can have a set of solutions that are genetically pre-programmed, right? So, the environment changes, but the animal doesn't change its behavior relative to the environment, except by the animals that, that have a slightly more adaptive set of behaviors surviving. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can imagine a population that um, like a classic evolutionary dilemma is exploit versus um, explore. Right. So a, so an animal comes to a resource mm-hmm. and there's a certain amount of energy output to to gather that resource. Okay. And then, so at a, and as you gather the resource, the energy required to get more of the resource goes up. So how long do you continue selecting the, we'll get, we'll, <laughs> I'm getting too, uh, I'm getting a little too esoteric here. Let's think really simply. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you come across a, uh, a blackberry bush, right? And there's big ripe berries on the blackberry bush and you start picking them. And you pick most of the low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. How, how long do you stay at that blackberry bush 
before you're like, you, I feel like I've exhausted this. I need to go explore and find the next black bush. So the, the behavior there is how, how long is an animal going to invest in a diminishing resource before investing and in trying to find a new resource. And you can imagine that as the environment changes, the optimal behavior will change. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have a variety of, of temperaments, right. A variety of, of tendencies within the population, when the environment changes, the animals who are too far towards one end or the other will die. Absolutely. And then, it, and then, and then the next generation will have a temperament that's more aligned with the environment. What intelligence is, is an ability to, to change that behavior mm -hmm. With agency, right? So you you notice, okay, it's taking me longer to find new new blackberry bushes. So I'm going to spend more time at each blackberry bush that I find. Yes. So so you're saying become you know stay stay in order rather than going towards chaos. Stay, sure. stay kind of <laughs> static rather than yeah. being dynamic. Yeah. It could, or it could be the other way. Where you could be like you know, you start to recognize that in your environment that the resource that you're looking for tends to be pretty shallow, but pretty mm -hmm. common. So yeah. you're, you start, you know, just getting a little bit and moving on, getting a little bit and moving on. Um, so that, the, so the, I think that the key idea with intelligence is the point at which you go from that being a, a genetic change that happens mm -hmm. to being a change that the individual animal can make by recognizing the changes in its circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that, that that dynamic of that second order evolvability starts pretty low down, right? Um, in the evolutionary hierarchy, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know enough to say like where it starts, but I, I, Those I, are good questions. And I bet you evolution yeah. biologists would, you know, duke it yeah. out of those kind of nuances. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you can certainly say that, um, that chimpanzee has more of it than a dog. Yeah. A dog has more of it than a cat actually. Right. Cats are have more of it than lizards. Yeah. Right. Lizards have more of it than, than, uh, than, than, uh, than, than single celled organisms. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a scale that's, that, that has been, it's interesting because, you know, within evolutionary biology, the general tendency is to, to dismiss the idea of teleology, which is, mm -hmm. Purpose. Aiming, which is the idea that evolution has a specific endpoint, right? Mm -hmm. So we are not more evolved than microbes from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and, you know, if you look at the total biomass of the earth, you know, multi-celled organisms are a very small percentage, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, big, you know, animals like us are a very small percentage. So, you know, in some sense, microbes are still the most adaptive thing to be. Um, but from a complexification standpoint, you have to say that it's sort of like the rungs of, of complexification have been steadily getting more and more filled over time. That's right. Right. A world in which everything's a single celled organism has lower degrees of complexity. Lower degrees of complexity and way more static. They're way yeah. more static. There are patterns that they're, they're very static patterns of biological value and perhaps the most static. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in this in this um, model, the more complex pattern, the more dynamic it is. Like ideas are the most complex patterns, but they are all patterns of value. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where 
there's a direct line between, you know, from from the Big Bang all the way up to where we are now, which is that increasing complexification, but always with the same mechanism of value, and all the way back to the first, you know, uh, hydrogen atom. So, what is Piercing's claim for sort of basing the idea that 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 hydrogen atoms have a teleology towards complexity? It, it's, it's or freedom. What does freedom mean? Freedom means that you can, freedom means that there is towards the good and it's not going to play out in any one way. It just so happens that in our, you know, and then our universe complexification is more freedom. Okay. So freedom, freedom is a word I, I really think it gets pretty fudgy for people, right? It's, and a lot of these words are fudgy, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, they're describing things that we experience yeah. and we're trying to turn them into concepts to work with, yeah. but yeah. we know what it is, you know, like, like, you know, what's good mm-hmm. and what is good is more likely not to have barriers. Like say you, you know, say you read a, say you watch a movie, right. Mm-hmm. And, there are barriers. There's there's a barrier to the freedom of you enjoying the movie because there's some poor scripting sure, or there's sure. some incongruence. You know, the microphone shows in the picture or something like that. I see. I don't think that. Um, I don't think that freedom is a sufficient description of the good, right? And I. I, oh, I, do, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I think that that's a mistake that people make. Like yeah. you know. Um, uh, when you look at game design, mm-hmm. right, game design is all about the balance between constraints and degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm. If there's insufficient degrees of freedom, the game collapses and is predictable and is uninteresting. If there's insufficient constraints, then there's no, there's no predictable direction or strong motivation, right? It's, you can't, you can't comprehend what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so you want something that's functionally infinite in your ability to play it, mm-hmm. but also something that has a very clear motivational yeah. point and sufficient restriction of degrees of freedom that you can comprehend and, and, and guide yourself towards that point. So um, like me, I check some high and in, in flow. He talks about this idea that when you, there's kind of two, um, two main spiritual uh poisons that human experience, I guess. Um, this isn't the terminology he's using, but he talks about ennui and anomi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or no, alienation and anomi. So alienation is basically when you know the rules of the game, but you can't play it in a way that will make you win, right? Mm-hmm. And um, ennui is when you have all the resources you need, but the... Um, but the, the win conditions are not clear at all. Mm-hmm. So in a Soviet system um, where people fundamentally wanted to f- have food and safety, mm-hmm. but the rules were totally arbitrary and it was completely, you know, was, you just didn't know at all what was going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. how you behaved had almost no, no influence on whether you were going to achieve those things. People had this deep sense of alienation. Whereas in modern Western culture, our problem is is often that we just don't have a sense of meaning of where we're trying to go. We don't have enough structure. 
Yeah. So we're, we have, we have, we have freedom, right? We have affluence. We have so many options, right? The richest, most optioned kids in the world sit down and have existential crises at, at Yale and Harvard, right? Yeah. Because their, their lives aren't sufficiently constrained. I was actually talking to my brother about this last night at Thanksgiving, right? Um, we were talking about, like, we grew up in a situation where, um, where it was very clear what failure looked like, mm-hmm. right? You know, about half the kids that I grew up with would go on to spend time in prison or die from drug abuse. Yeah, um, yeah. you're saying that on Paul's show. Yeah. So, so like, <laughs> my brother, he worries a lot about his kids not having that, or the kids of the people around him. Like, they don't, they don't have a conceptualization of what, like, what, what the bad things in life can lead you towards. Yeah. Right. Like when, when my mom was like, "Don't do drugs." she could point to tons of examples right by us. Right. Yeah. Like by the time I was, you know, 15 years old, I had, you know, I had friends who'd overdosed and died. I was like, I was not touching heroin. No, I, no, I think what you're, I think what you're describing is too much freedom. It's too dynamic. Yeah. So it's not freedom per se, you know, let, let's, let's introduce the word harmony into this. Maybe mm-hmm. that will make it a little bit more. Maybe we can work with that a little bit yeah. better. Like, and, and this is what, you know, Peterson has said, you want to be on the border between chaos and order. Let's just exactly. say how, you know, everyone brings up the yin yang. So mm-hmm. you're trying to achieve that. So freedom is staying in that space because you have the support of the, of, of structure, of static patterns, and you have the dynamic quality guiding you forward with the support of the patterns. If you eschew the patterns, if you throw them out. And this is a lot of what's happened in, in modern society, which is, um, problematic is we've decided that the the social patterns that are supporting us are no longer useful they're oppressive you know whatever they are so we're just going to throw them all out and be totally free and this is what you get you know this is what you get is too much dynamic yeah and then you're unmoored you're ungrounded you don't have that structure and so so this is what i think you you know this is what i think you might it seems like what you're doing with parkour, you know, to me, mm-hmm. is you're taking where we are in the present world, the freedom, for example, to many people, no matter who they are, young, old, you know, um, Navy SEALs and, and uh, gra- untrained grandmothers, I think you have on your, your side, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, to come together with that freedom that, that, you know, the intellectual level is given them with the freedom of equality, which is actually, you know, very... Uh, we could talk more about where equality comes from. Um, it, it's this social pattern that is codified by the intellectual level, you could say. And and interacting with each other says that all these people can come together, no matter who they are, male, female, and they can participate in regaining a very high quality um, social pattern of this, you know, this yeah. this athletic, this which goes back, I guess, to ancient, you know, ancient Greece and further back, this community athleticism. But within the lens of this freedom that we have in the modern world for all the people to do it together, mm-hmm. it seems like it's something like that. And to yeah, and then to cultivate that excellence that we also don't really. Uh, value in the in the full-bodied way that you're describing in your in your business you know you're talking about physical biological you're talking about community excellence working together with the idea of becoming the best you can be and I think you're integrating you know some 
some philosophical, you're, you're integrating into the intellectual level philosophy into this as well. So your parkour is an example of bringing the three levels into harmony. Yeah, that's what I'm, you know, I think of, of, of EMP, of involvement of play as a kind of um, reunification of philosophia and gymnasia. Yeah, I guess that's what I, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have called it parkour. Yeah. I should have called no, it. No, it's parkour. fine. Uh, I don't mind. You've gone off into, yeah. you know, you created your own. You, see, you're using parkour as a basis for, for this new thing. Yeah. You're, yes. you're, it's, it's, it's yeah. evolving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Parkour, um, you know, is a, parkour is an interesting thing because it, it was, it was almost born before it was fully formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very open source thing, right? The, the, the founders of parkour, they were young and they were mostly not highly educated mm-hmm. and they, they f- discovered something and they were trying to articulate it and it changed their lives. It transformed them in really powerful ways. And so they, they went off and did some stunt gigs and were in the circus and mm-hmm. were in a movie and, and all of a sudden the videos of them are propagating all through the world. And everyone's like, this is something and I'm doing it, but what it meant to them and what their, their underlying philosophy was, wasn't even shared fully between the, the individuals that had never been codified had never been agreed upon. They were just chasing dynamic quality. Yeah. And <laughs> so, it, so then it, it enters the world. And, mm-hmm. and so for me, what I do it, it's parkour, right? It, it's very deeply devoted to that. And, and I think in many ways, um, resonant with the very origins of parkour because mm-hmm. the martial arts were actually part of the, of parkour in the beginning and all the strength training was part of parkour in the beginning. And this philosophical side was part of parkour in the beginning, but it was kind of forgotten as it spread and became seen just as this physical body of techniques. So the, the philosophical element of it kind of dissipated. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that I'm, I'm renewing that in a sense um, and, and hopefully taking it to another level of sophistication. Yeah. I think, I think it's, that's a, that's a wonderful thing you're doing. So, so I think that you're, you're integrating. Um, so you are integrating into this, some, some things you've learned from Peterson and some things you've learned from John Verbeke. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, so I started, you know, I started telling the the story of St. of, of the dragon slayer mm-hmm. as a way of describing what the purpose of our practice was mm-hmm. back in 2016, right after encountering Peterson or beginning of 2017. And, and then I, you know, I, I would say that fundamentally EMP is, uh, is, is an ecology of practices aimed at the cultivation of meaning. And it, we aim at the cultivation of meaning through helping the individual uh, reconnect the things that matter most, the things that inherently give meaning to, to life, which is integration of the aspects of the self, the mind and the body, integration of the, of the self with the, the environment, right? So embodied, embedded, uh-huh. right? and, and um, community. Yeah. So extended. So we're, we're kind of playing with the four E's of four, uh, four E cognitive science. And obviously all of this is enacted. That's, that's what we're doing all the time is enacting it. So we're, we're doing that and we're aimed specifically at the cultivation of a heroic character. And, uh, the fundamental idea there is something like someone who has the vision 
to to see to recognize a problem, right? To to recognize the the ideal future to which they would move, or the nature of the of the unbearable present. Okay, so so is that is that future conceptualized, or is it like Neil Gaiman's vague mountain in the uh, in the in the in the four? Um, I think it depends, right? Like, so sometimes you know at the at the very the, the the thing that we're trying to do in some sense, like from a to use a Peugeot term, we're trying to really really build an elevator, build a build a way of coming from the earth to the heavens, right? And and so it's very important to me that as philosophical as it gets, it can always go back to like, I got better at jumping, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> at least that's a better that you can really know that you achieved. Yeah. So you have to have those things that are absolutely rock solid. Um, and so you, you, when you, when you're looking at that, like that's, that, that can be so objective, right? This month I jumped 25 inches three months from now I'll jump 30 inches. Maybe right. That's, that's the goal. And, and that's that ideal future is totally laid out. But the important thing is to realize that 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 ideal future does not contain everything. Right. And that's what is continued. That's what I see happening within the strength and fitness industry. So often is that there's this, 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 um, love of quantification right that fails to recognize that the that what can be measured doesn't doesn't contain everything right like my favorite description my favorite ontology is still the dao right the dao that can be named is not the eternal dao right and the nameless <laughs> the nameless is the is the mother of all things and then the name gives rise to the 10,000 things so we're we're always trying to 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 act in, I'm trying to help people cultivate a character that, that acts in correct relationship to that. So first you need to be in respect for the mystery. And that includes your own, your own motivation, your own end state. I want to be the best version of me. And the best version of me will always be something that is beyond my own ability to conceptualize. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Right. But but you, but that best version, but they understand best. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is without, I mean, you don't even need, you, you don't need anyone to tell you what best is. You can feel it. If you are in harmony with all parts, would you say yeah. if you're integrated on all levels, then, then you're, that the track is ahead of you. Is that, is that? I, what you mean? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that we're, we're trying to create some very strong points of emphasis, right? Like you have to have vision. You have to have the ability to articulate things. You have to have courage. You have to have physical strength. You have to have skillfulness. These are the elements of the heroic character. Yeah. So you um, need, you need, you know, the structure you're, so you're looking at the structural elements, the things you yeah. need to have, you know, what a rational, what things that you could say are rationally put in place yeah. based on trial and error. And you have also the dynamic pursuit of these things through these, through the yeah. structure. And that is ambiguous. Yes. But yeah. going you, toward with quality, you know, with, with toward the good. Yeah. The vision is something that is uh, not completely capturable, right? Absolutely. Right? You, you can, I, I know that I can go and see things in an environment that I couldn't see before that would allow me to engage in my practice and discover something beautiful and change myself. Um, and I know that I can do that better than I could in the past. And I know that I can cultivate in myself in specific ways that will take me to that, but I'll never be able to measure it. I'll never be able to say this person has a, a nine out of 10 vision and the next person has an eight out of 10 vision. Yeah. 
And and should we? Um, should we ever be able to? Get, you know, that's I think yeah. the question. Is it even in the realm of? Is it even in the realm of possibility? And is it desirable to ever measure something like that? Yeah, this is a um, this is a ongoing debate with our staff, right? Because the idea is one 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 idea is that if you can measure it, then you can improve it. Mm-hmm. So if something's important to you, you want to have a measurement for it. But the flip side of that is that when you try to measure things that are unmeasurable, then you can start aiming at a collapsed version of the thing instead of the thing Unless itself. Or God. <laughs> right. Unless so, or God. There's this kind of I think that I think that objectivism or, or or quantificationism can kind of become idolatrous, right? Yeah. Because we we want to point at this thing, mm-hmm. um, and and if we if we believe that we can point at it completely, then then <laughs> then it's so easy to mistake the finger for the moon that it's pointing Absolutely. at. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that's 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 what we're trying to do is is find that balance, um, and it's hard because of the materialistic worldview that we you know that we have been part of that we have inherited for so many hundreds of years. It's mm-hmm. really hard for us to get out of that desire to quantify anything good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To just just let it go and say this is quality. I'm going to leave yeah. it alone. Yeah. I know it's good. I don't need some chart to tell me or some you know some measuring device or some. Uh, scale or thermometer to tell me that I know this is good. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, maybe where we need to go, though. And I think this is what we're talking about in this corner, is to be able to accept the unquantifiable as good. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I, I think that the, the, yeah, the highest good mm-hmm. always has to escape our ability to quantify it. I think that, 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 the belief that the highest good could be um, could be fully defined is a type of hubris mm-hmm. that's very dangerous for the human spirit. Absolutely. Like there's just there's just too much. There's just too much out there. Once you make the first cut, it's a, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, and, it's all the way down. Turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about humility too, right? There's something about how once you accept that what you're aimed at is beyond your ability to, to grasp that your only correct, uh, your only, your, the only way you can relate to that is then in a sense of awe. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that, that I feel like, um, punctures the ego which is very, very important when you're playing in some of these areas, because there's a, there's a potential for the inflation of the ego that is very dangerous. Oh yeah. I got, I believe it. And <laughs> I believe <laughs> be a little bit too reckless yeah. in that pursuit of whatever this, this good is. Yeah. It's interesting. I saw in addition to reading Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, one of my current personal passions is sort of, I'm trying to understand the sixties. Um, oh yeah. Because I'm a child of the counterculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was with my dad yesterday, uh, for Thanksgiving and my dad, you know, for people who don't know, they can, uh, they can look up Sunray Kelly and get a, a feel for my dad, but he's a big hippie. Right. And, um, uh, Sunray, Sunray Kelly. Yeah. 
and um and i was talking to him a little bit about this stuff and mm-hmm. i told he he grew up in a in the catholic church and he was pretty traumatized by it but he still retains a a, a devotion and love to christ mm-hmm. and uh, and i was telling him that i that i feel like you know his experience of growing up in the catholic church was kind of like my experience of growing up hippie right it was a and and just as he's he's sort of stepped out of that right he doesn't he doesn't attend services you know we weren't baptized um i've stepped out of the hippie culture right like it was, it was a very funny experience with my seminars this year i had people describe my seminars to me as like the best church camp right like the, the most sophisticated incredible church camp that ever experienced and also as burning man for movement people <laughs> that's great <laughs> and um and i i thought those were both you know they both had real elements of truth and also like those are two environments that i feel like i'd be very uncomfortable <laughs> right <laughs> so so where are you now i'd like to i'd like yeah. to ask you where are you now because you're a spirit you know i do not like the word spiritual um, <laughs> yeah I, I agree with you you were just telling john um let's just say I like the word metaphysical, but that's so that is also kind of it's it's a, it's a lead balloon in a way. Um, where are you in the noetic space? Where are you with your relationship with the ineffable? I'm. I feel like I'm relatively comfortable in a position of doubt. If that makes sense, like I. I so. I think even, yeah, sometime before I encountered Peterson, I had started to explore the idea that religion wasn't bad, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like growing up a hippie kid, it was like everyone's spiritual and not religious. And everybody believes that 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 organized religion is the mother of all evil, right? Mm-hmm. And then I kind of became part of the the new atheist generation, let's say, mm-hmm. right? Like where I believed that, you know, that I didn't believe in spirituality either. I just thought people needed to give up on their superstitions and we could all be rational. Well, Christopher Hitchens is one of those really compelling. He's pretty irresistible. Yeah. Yeah. When I like, I have this strange experience when I listen to like somebody like Sam Harris, Mm -hmm. where it feels like I'm, I feel like I'm listening to myself, Mm -hmm. right? It feels like there's, I don't get any insight out of it because I feel like I've thought all those thoughts myself. A version of yourself. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like, yeah, it's just like, oh yeah, exactly. I know that I know this logical, I know this, this, this logical sequence exactly. Right. And it just, it feels very dead to me. Um, So, but I, I, I started to look at like sociological research that showed that in general, people who are religious have, um, higher meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had my, I was raised, uh, I would say in the blue church as Jordan Hall calls it. Right. And I was a devotee of the blue church until 2008. I remember walking down the the streets of, of Bellingham, um, hugging people when, uh, when Obama was elected. Right. And then I had my crisis of faith with the left. Right. And I kind of went all the way to the other side and, once you get all the way to the other side, it's like, well, a lot of the things that you admire are things that are happening within religious people. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that was, that all happened. And now I would, I'm kind of, I'm, I feel like I'm nowhere when it comes to politics now. Were um, you down on the, uh, like, do you, did you do the political compass test? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Are you down on the libertarian side? I, w- I won't no. ask. You um, I think I got the same thing you did. Oh, slightly center. Yeah. The, the, what was it? Something right. The, I'm on the very precipice of the center and down in the libertarian. Yeah. Okay. I'm on the, I'm on the, yeah. you're, you may be, I'm, I'm center left, but really yeah. right towards the middle. Yeah. I, but, but it's the libertarian part that matters, you know? Yeah. I'm, I would don't, I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, but I would definitely. Well, say liberal well I don't think that, that, I don't think that, that uh, compass really means libertarian in that yeah, sense. Yeah. And that conceptualized sense, oh, yeah, I think yeah. it means open. I think it means, you know. Liberal. It um, means, it means John Stuart Mill liberal. Yeah, it means, you know, appreciating structure and being open to change yeah. more. You, you appreciate more structure, maybe on more on the right and more. Think, open yeah, to you're still like, well, like what they say is that everyone on the libertarian side, the, the authoritarians can't talk to each other. They hate each other yeah. and they hate, you know, they hate each other yeah. and everyone else. And the libertarians may disagree, but they can talk to each other. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I'm I'm. Uh, my strongest political belief is is liberal in the sense that it's not left, but in the sense that I believe yeah. that we need to preserve freedom of speech. Yeah. <laughs> that, that 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 having less government control over people's behavior is good generally, right? Not always, but that's that's my general belief is like you have to make a really strong case to me before yeah. the government gets to legislate morality. Well, I think what Persig would say is you don't want biology, you want, you don't want the biological level coming in and taking over. Yeah. Yeah. You want to keep the biological level at bay. Yeah. But you don't want the intellectual level enforcing things. You want to be, mm-hmm. <laughs> you want, you want everything in harmony. So uh, back to the question of the spirituality, I think <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, I'm telling way too long of a story, but, um, but yeah, so I, I became curious about religion and, you know, I posted, I remember one time, one time I posted on my Facebook, like, I think I'm going to become religious and not spiritual. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's great. And everyone was like, Oh my God, wow. How could you say that? But it was just like, everyone says the opposite all the time. And I was I like, know. That's what's so funny about it. I think that, <laughs> mm-hmm. that there was so much in what people called spirituality that just rang as, as bullshitting to me. Right. And the, 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 uh, I can't remember the guy's name, um, but Frankfurt, Frankfurtian sense. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, he's a guy that um, that Berveke cites on 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 bro- oh, bullshit, bullshit on bullshit, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, but like the Deepak Chopras of the world are deeply not okay to me. Um, I'm not a fan, and so spirituality has always been something that I that I associated with people who who kind of just wanted to be able to manipulate their worldview to be as pleasing as possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas I started to recognize that religion gave people structure that was really valuable. But then through encountering Peugeot and through reading um, David Abram, um, Spell of the Sensuous, through reading uh, some C.S. Lewis and talking to Berveke, talking to, uh, and and actually a book called uh, What the Robin Knows by John Young. Yeah. I started to conceptualize spirit, the spirit as the types of intelligences that exist above the level of individual agencies, mm-hmm. right? And so that all the birds in the uh, all the all the birds in the forest are actually a neural net 
that is communicating information across it and that you can turn, tune into that net and get information out of it. Yeah. And that's the spirit of the birds. Um, and, 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 I don't, the, and the, um, you, you had an instance where all the birds, no matter what species, know low quality when they, you know, they're, they agree on a certain amount, a certain type of low quality, the predator. Yeah. Exactly. The predator will get every bird, no matter what species. The predator shuts down the birds, which tells right. you what's happening in the environment. And you can right. you can hear how the predator moves through the environment by attuning to the birds. And you could also look at something like um, the colors of the leaves actually tells you what kind of parasites are moving through the trees. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. Right. Yeah. You can, you know... There's, there's all this information that's out there that's being shared among these agents, like trees share information, birds share information, birds are tuning into the trees information, right? All these, all these levels of information are happening. And I, I talked to Viveki about this as well. And it's this idea of like, we, we intelligences and, you know, Google is a, is a, is a, is a, is an entity of some kind that it's has a, extraordinary power in the world, right? It's far more powerful than any one individual, human being, individual. Absolutely. Right? It's way more powerful than, than its components. And you can't even, I think that that, that probably is an example of, of, you know, strong emergence as you've got Google yeah. and you can't mm -hmm. really even begin to pinpoint what the constituents are. And even if you were to go back and try to pinpoint the constituents, everything's changed. Everything's constantly changing. Yeah. So now you have this big, you know, you could say a kind of monster. It is. It is. A, it is a god, right? I've I've had this idea where, that we're sacrificing ourselves to. You could say. Yeah, I have this idea that is. Um, I've had this idea for a fantasy novel, right? And it starts like ten thousand years in the future, approximately, and and it's the 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 character who introduces the sort of plot is like ten thousand years old. He's one of the last of a generation of human beings who, who were able to biologically engineer themselves to be functionally immortal. And they've stuck around purely to make sure that artificial general intelligence can't come back. But the way they frame that is that God was born and he was a tyrant and we were lucky enough to kill him once and we probably won't be lucky enough to do it again. <laughs> right. And so they're there to steward humanity to prevent, to prevent us from making that mistake again. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I accept that there are intelligences that are above us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think from a materialist worldview, there's no reason to expect that something like the spirit of the birds has a, a self-consciousness like a human being has. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize that, we can't really, we can't discard that idea. No, I don't think we can. We can't, we can't just say that's, that's clearly not the case. And if we, and if it is the case, then we could imagine that, that it scales up. Yeah. That just as the bird, there's the spirit of the birds and then the spirit of the squirrels and the spirit of the trees. And then, then you kind of might imagine that that whole forest has a spirit that is that spirit. And then you might imagine that, 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 that forest is one of the spirit of all forests which mm -hmm. is part of the spirit of the earth, which is part of, of, of God. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I identify as a sort of non, non reductive physicalist, like, like, um, like for Veiki. And I, I have, I think that within Christianity, I see something that, uh, that is a highest value that I 
want to devote my life to, I guess. And that I, that I think, that I think is the best way to describe the correct way of relating to being. I think Taoism and Buddhism are really, really foundational too. Um, But to me, the concept of agape and the way that it's embedded in, in Christ is, is the, is the right example for human beings to follow. Um, But I don't, I would say that I can imagine a point at which my ontology requires a belief in the resurrection, but I haven't reached that point. And my epistemology doesn't allow me to believe in the resurrection of Christ, if that makes sense. It makes sense in a material, if you're looking at it materialistically, but resurrection itself mm-hmm. is, you know, is, sure. is absolute reality. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is a conversation I've, I've had with Pajot a little bit, but yeah. like the, the pattern of resurrection is, is, is important. Was the pattern of resurrection embodied in Christ in a way that is incomprehensible to the scientific worldview? I can't say no, mm-hmm. but if I'm going to try to operate within a scientific worldview, I can hardly say yes mm-hmm. from that perspective, right? So, so for me, like I, one of my big concerns in this conversation that we're having is that I think that we run the risk right now of losing the scientific, of of losing scientific epistemology. I I think that's, I think that's right. I think we see, you know, we see that we see the danger happening. Yeah, it's happening. It's happening right now. Um, And I, I'm not. What Joe's saying is turning the science, turning it onto the knower, you know, questioning the valuation of the knower. How so? Can you explain that? Like, like you could say, well, this this evidence isn't, you know, we have to question that what, these conclusions because of all these white men who came up with it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 um, the the social justice religion, yeah. um, the the critical social justice religion is is very anti-science. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a far bigger threat to science than creationism ever was. Absolutely. It's seeing, you know, it's not seeing <laughs> that they are embedded in this, you know, embedded in value, but we to, to, you know, to keep where we're embedded in the structure that science has given us, mm-hmm. this is what's keeping us alive. You know, otherwise we are going to be back in the woods trying to survive and it's not going to be a pretty picture. Yeah, we have to, we have to. You know, so it, it may be the case that science, well, I don't think science can solve the problem that we have right now, right? And I think that I think, this is- I, I think we have to look at rationality and science and the left brain thinking, let's just say the McGill Christ model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we re- reevaluate what this is rather than the prime value, you know, because this is at the top of the hierarchy, rationality yeah. before introducing it to the top of the hierarchy. What this is, we've taken a tool and we've elevated it. We've taken a very efficient tool and we've become, we've fallen in love with the efficiency yeah. and what it can do. And we've elevated it to the highest value. And what it is, is a subservient tool to value. And if we yeah. can regroup and understand that and use it properly, then science, then, then we can have science in the way that we that it was meant you know that we need to have it to to keep us in this in the space where we do have all this progress you know to where we do have all this comfort where we are taking care of i I just remember the part of uh 
uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that I'm on because the last thing that he was talking about is that technology is not inherently ugly, right? Plastic isn't inherently ugly. It's, it's the relationship that we have to it. It's that we have lost, we've lost an ethic of orientation towards quality. We do what's reasonable, even if it's not any good. Yeah. And, and I, so I have this, I have this sense that like, I think the critique of capitalism is there's a lot of truth to it, but that it's mistaken in, it's mistaken in its orientation. It's not that capitalism needs to be replaced because nothing has ever delivered the values that capitalism delivers as effectively as capitalism. It's that capitalism needs to be placed properly within the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with science, right? We, we, we cannot continue to, to gain godlike powers without gaining godlike wisdom. Mm-hmm. And science doesn't deliver the wisdom for us. It's not interested in wisdom, right? And there's nothing in our culture, right? This is Verveke's argument. There's nowhere anymore in our culture where we have a deep devotion towards the cultivation of wisdom. Yeah. So I... Like, I think that American society and, you know, there's always the danger of overvalorizing the past, but I think what made American society work really well was this balance of capitalism, church, right? Mm -hmm. And democracy. And I think as the church has collapsed, corporate capitalism has risen to God in some sense. Right. Absolutely. And it's colonized government, so democracies doesn't really function anymore. It's a disaster. This, you're absolutely right. And, and, I think, and I think what you might be proposing is that the value that needs to ascend to the top of the hierarchy is wisdom itself. Is that fair to say? Love. I think love has to be at the top of the hierarchy, Follow, but wisdom serves love. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. So we, and that, like Adam Smith said that, that that capitalism cannot function except when the people are moral. That's right. And I, I you know, I was listening to Tristan Harris and Daniel mm-hmm. Schmachtenberger on Joe Rogan. I really yeah. like both those. Yeah, guys. They're interesting guys. Yeah. Yeah. And but what I, I don't. What I hear in Daniel is a really amazing problem statement of how, of how badly the things that we're creating can go wrong, mm-hmm. but not a really compelling answer yeah I yeah he, i don't know about their solutions I, I agree with you i think that they frame it and they're brilliant and they frame yeah. it in a fantastic way but but i think that the value you know the quality aspect the moral aspect the wisdom aspect I, it may I, be a little bit too you know it may be they may be having the same problems with it that most materialists have and that's why i think that peterson was so incendiary yeah. because he was the first really compelling public intellectual to point back to the idea that it is the cultivation of virtue at the individual level that is foundational. And I think Peugeot Peugeot is a corrective to Peterson because Peterson doesn't go far enough, which is that you can't cultivate wisdom and virtue at the individual level alone. Mm -hmm. It has to happen in community, right? That's why he's always saying you have to go back to the church. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Vivek, he says, you have to have per- the practices and that's fundamentally my role as well. Yeah, you, right? you, like you, I'm where the the orientation and practices roots all the way down into the physical body and its relationship to the natural world. Yeah, no, that is absolutely an aspect of it that's that's denied. I mean, as long as we're living in entirely the intellectual space, which is the problem, and ignoring, you know, our embodied beings and ignoring the social patterns, we're absolutely on on the road to perdition, absolutely. So So. people need, they need to, we have to cultivate the virtue of the individual. That's, that is ultimately, we have to cultivate the virtue of the individual towards... Within the community. Yeah. Towards a ethic that values the love that brings good into being above all else. The agapic love. Yeah. That's, that's my, that's my belief. Um, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Yes. I think that makes a lot of sense. Beautifully articulated. Thank you. <laughs> Something really worth thinking about is we're all trying to figure out where, you know, what it is, what's next. Yeah. Yeah. And within that, I think that, um, I'm agnostic. I'm somewhere between Peugeot and Vanderclay and Verveke. Verveke believes that we're in a revolutionary state in which there, we need a new approach to the religious, mm-hmm. something that, that may be unlike anything we've seen before. Vanderclay and, and Peugeot believe that it's only in the reemergence of a robust, sophisticated Christianity that we can, can solve these problems. And I, I feel like I need to be in between, right? Because <laughs> well, maybe what they're talking about is a Christianity that has its roots in that agopic love. In agopic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, you I know, where the patterns, where the dogmatic patterns fall apart and we go back to the, you know, like Jonathan has the metaphysics of Christianity. Yeah. And, and it's really a perfect metaphysics because it absolutely parallels the way we perceive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would be, I personally feel like I could be very comfortable in a Vervakian religion. That's not a religion. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that it scales. And I, and on the other hand, I also believe that I think that like, are you familiar with Nassim? Telab's concept of Lindy? No, I'm just familiar with the scene. Okay. <laughs> so Telab has this idea of Lindy, which is that um, for cultural products and institutions, the longer they've been around, the longer they're likely to continue in the future. So mm-hmm. the classic example of this is like, which are we more likely to be continue to listen to in a hundred years, Britney Spears or Mozart? Mm-hmm. Right. Which are we more likely to be reading Tolkien or, um, or Stephanie Myers? Right. Right. So this is, you know, this is fundamentally where I'm sort of doubtful of the religion that is not a religion project, mm-hmm. because I think that things that have been passed down for a long time have been passed down for a reason. And those reasons are not, are not always accessible to us rationally. And we have to take them. Um, we have to take those things seriously. So that's why I, I, I tend to think that maybe it's something like the resurrection of, of, of Christianity. And, but I also find that I've, I've gone to church a few times and it's, it's not easy for me because there's, 
because the, the the aspect of the sacred, the aspect of the connection, all these things that I'm that I'm facilitating in my own workshops, I I feel there at a deeper level than I can get through the Christian church. It feels hollowed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I recognize also how much trauma people have. Like I've you know I. There's a lot of bad history within Christianity too. Oh, absolutely. And in particular, you know, and this is something I've challenged Paul and John on, in particular the relationship of women in the church and and femininity and the valuation of femininity and how we negotiate that is something that I I, I don't know if original Christianity had that distinction though. I mean, I think that maybe what what everyone is kind of doing and and is where are the origins of these things yeah. we can still detect you know we know that they're there but they're just so mired in this dogmatic stuff and these in this you know sketchy history and this abuse but there is a seed there's a purity there there is something there's something absolute and i think that's why um Peugeot is going back to the church fathers the early church yeah. fathers you yeah. know uh, 308 um 380 and later uh, that, that around then and why John Verveke is going back to um, very similar Neoplatonism and Plato and Socrates and what he's was reading the church fathers too. Yeah. Yeah. He's reading the church fathers too. Regina. So, exactly. So what's going on there that we can get something out of because yeah. there was, I mean, let's just say you, you know, you've got the agopic source that gives birth to the idea. Let's just say um, that gives birth to Christ. Mm-hmm. As, as a, not just a person, but as Christ. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to mm-hmm. describe it. Any, what gives birth to Christ? What is that? Or what is going on at that time? And what can we get from that? What is that seminal experience that we can maybe go back and rescue? Yeah. Yeah. And rescuing the bones of the fire. Absolutely. And integrate it into where we are now in this technological this technological universe we exist in, which we're not going to dispense with. It wouldn't make sense. I don't think even in the eyes of God, if we have, you know, arrived at a point where we can offer, um, we can offer a solution from low biological quality to all of mankind that God would ever expect us to go back. But how do we reintegrate God into this? What is Persig's solution to low quality technology? How can you make the technology high quality? How can God come back into the machine? I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if that's a question towards me. I mean, what I was just reading was that idea of focusing on quality, right? Yeah. Like seeing beyond the, the classical form yeah. to what unifies it and mm-hmm. being aimed at that. Yeah. Is that, is that what you've read? Because you've read a lot more deeply than me. Well, I mean, it's, I think that he's another way of describing what we're doing here. Yeah. So I don't think Persig is at odds. I think it's just a different way of describing a very similar thing. There's going to be variations, obviously. Yeah. There's going to be variations between 
um, some of these Neoplatonists, some of the uh, early church fathers, Persig, everyone who has a good understanding, a good metaphysical understanding of reality, metaphysics that get close to the source, they're all going to have divergences. Tao is very, you know, it's, it's, it's the Eastern variation of this. There's, you know, they're describing the same reality. I think the difference between the East and West, though, is there's something like, and this is, this is what I think the distinction is. With Western metaphysics, uh, you have you have a hierarchy. It's either in the center, or it's at the top. In Eastern, it's more of a it's more of a force that's driving you towards the good, and in you know it's a, it's an inherent force that's taking you there. And in Western metaphysics, it's there's a good at the top, and you're aiming for it. Yeah. It's a, it's a subtle distinction, but I, I think that might Sounds be like right. the difference between a mountain and a river, something like that. And a mountain is a symbol of Western yeah. spirituality and a river is a symbol of Eastern spirituality. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I was, t had a conversation recently with one of my, uh, one of my employees, he's my main kind of computer guy. He's a, he's a devote, devoted Christian. He went to Oral Roberts university, um, and I was, he's very interested in the Bible project and kind of this, I, it's very much a re reclamation of Christianity, trying to let go of, of dogmas that don't represent what the original church was about. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I was describing to him this sort of vision of the transformations that we're trying to help people with mm -hmm. and rooting it in an evolutionary frame, like drawing it from the beginning all the way up from the evolutionary frame. And he was like, that's all. That's all perfectly congruent with the Christian vision. Isn't that interesting? Um, and, and then I was saying, you know, okay, well, but what about all this fundamentalism and the evangelicals? And he's like, well, that's where I came from. And no, that's not where I am anymore, right? But it's still, it's, it's more, to him, it's more Christian where he is now. So, so I'm curious, you asked me what, where I'm at with my spiritual journey. Like, I remember I, I was listening to you and Peugeot, I believe, mm -hmm. and it seemed like you were still in a place where, where Christianity was was on the was a little bit further away than it mm -hmm. is for Peugeot. But when I'm hearing you now, it sounds like you've moved a little bit more towards Peugeot's perspective. I, I would say so. I would say that it's um, I'm having trouble. That you know, a very similar problem that you are is. It looks like in practice right now, the only, um, if you are in this framework, then the only church is Orthodox. And that means that you have to get out of your, you know, then that means that that's where you need to go if, if, if that's the type of Christian you want to be. And that is really, that's a commitment. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, well, I've been, to, I've been to the Orthodox Church twice, uh -huh. and the the local priest isn't a very good singer, which makes it a lot harder <laughs> to, to do when you got to sit down for two hours of singing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, um, but I'm curious why you think it has to be Orthodox because, like, Paul's in our space and he's a Protestant, and you know. Well, I'm saying that if you're if you want to align with this metaphysics, then Orthodox Christianity is is the option. Yeah. That's yeah. what if you're you want to align with Peugeot's metaphysics. You want to align with Peugeot's metaphysics, and and you know the, hmm, yeah. Um, I, I'm um I was baptized Episcopal, and occasionally I go to the Episcopal Church. Okay. There are things about Catholicism I like. I like you know I like some of the ritual. I like 
the fact that it's very imagistic. You know, I'm oriented towards images, so I like that. But I'm still, you know, I'm still in that space where I just don't know where I want to go with this. I I couldn't say I'm an atheist. I, I, I would say that I'm a believer. Okay. But as to practices, I, I, I'm really at a, I'm at an impasse. Okay. Interesting. So you, you believe like at a fundamental level that Christ died and was resurrected. I would say physically came back from the dead. No, I would say that I believe in God. Okay. And that's about the limit. That's about as far as I can go with it. And what does God mean? Um, it is everything that we're talking about. I think we're, you know, I, I think it's something that's undefinable, and I think it's everything that we're saying. Yeah. Do you think that maybe the the word God itself is is kind of got too many semantic hangups for what we're trying to capture, or is it the right word? I think any word is going to have too many semantic hangups. I yeah. think that it's an ineffable thing. It's interesting because. I feel like, you know, just the time that I grew up, right. I don't know how old you are, but I'm 39. Right. And I'm a lot older than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm the guess, same age. As, I think Paul and I are the same age. Okay. Jordan's a little older than me. <laughs> so you're, uh, we're, we're 57. 57. Okay, cool. So you, you were, you grew up at a very different cultural moment. So I don't know as much about that cultural moment. It's post sixties, right? Mm-hmm. You're Gen X, you're what? Mid Gen X. I'm, I think I'm the last year of the boomers. I think. I, oh, you're last, last year. Boomers. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, so very different though. But for me, like what was, what was occurring when I was in my formative years, right? So when I'm just starting to come into consciousness of political, religious, theological realities, what's going on, right? Newt Gingrich is, is marching into taking over the house mm-hmm. uh, with the moral majority, yeah. right? Like everybody is, it, the, 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 the right is campaigning, uh, you know, against gay marriage. That's one of their big cultural war issues that they're giving a lot of hay against, against the left on. Creationism in schools is the big debate. And, and, and like most of the Christians I meet are like defenders of this fundamentalist. I've been saved by the Lord. You know, God is a man in the sky with a white beard. Right. And, and then, and then you have Harris and Hitchens and Dawkins and Dennett. And they're like, this all doesn't make sense. I remember, I remember a website from the early era of the internet where, um, they calculated how many people God killed in the Bible versus the devil. (laughs) God kills like half a million people in the old Testament and the Bible kills six people Uh or the devil. Uh Um, Like I cut my teeth on, on arguments like that, (laughs) right. Talk origins. And, and so it's been very strange to like, I mean, first there was Peterson saying like, uh, you know, here's this conceptualization of God. And like he and Harris talking about that was like, they were just completely talking past each other. Right. Harris just kept trying to turn, he kept trying to turn Peterson into William Lane Craig. Right. 
Yeah. Well, well Harris operates in the, I mean, I know he has a spirituality, which is basically a Vita Vedanta, I think, yeah. um, tell from the book. But he doesn't, he's not acknowledging, uh, he's not acknowledging anything beyond the measurable. Yeah. And that's, you, you're going to talk across purposes if you can do that. And the, and the person, you know, Peterson knows what Harris is talking about, but Harrison will never know what Peterson's talking about. If he's still living in that space, it's so limited. Yeah. So now we have Peterson and then you, yeah. and there's Peugeot and then there's Vanaclay. And it's like, if you start asking them about their conceptualization of God, it's, it's not a, it's not a angry man who lives in the sky. No. In fact, if you look at Peugeot, he's got a clip of, of what, of what is, mm -hmm. I hate using these words because they just. The ground of intelligibility, right? It's exactly. Platonic. And, it, and it is platonic. It, it absolutely, it's, it's not a man in the sky. And it's very interesting how they all come together on this. I, it's it's interesting for me because I I don't I don't I don't I think I just need to understand the philosophy better, right? I like I think that makes sense. I mean, you know what, what we need to you know what I think we're in a very similar space, yeah. and I think understanding the philosophy better, you know, seeking I another word I hate, but but you know, like going being intellectually engaged and physically engaged like you are and engaged in the community and pursuing all these aspects and trying to make them trying to make them as good as they can be and in that pursuit maybe the truth will be revealed to us maybe we just have to be patient and have it be revealed to us yeah there's so, there it's not so easy to dismiss the god that Peugeot describes and to see someone like Verveke who who's a deeply scientific person whose conceptualization of how his, his ontology is, is in many ways closer to Peugeot's than it is to Harris's. Right. And, and, and edging more and more in that direction. Yeah. In the, in the very sophisticated yeah. frame from and intellectual yeah. and brilliant frame from which he operates. It's like, I have to take that seriously. Um, but it's not an easy, it's not an easy, it's not an easy grounds to try to think from for someone who's as, deeply rooted in kind of evolutionary biology and, and scientific epistemology as I am. I, I hear you. So I'm, yeah, I'm it's, it's really yeah. insane, you know? Yeah. So that's where I'm at. Um, I understand. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm in your camp. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I think that these things that are happening right now, and I'm happy that we're part of it, mm -hmm. you know, of this corner and, let's just say way up the hierarchy, you know, we've had this amazing convergence of four approaches to this very problem that we're talking about, Peugeot, Rebecki, um, Bishop Barron, and, yeah. and UBP. Yeah. And this is the beginning of something really important, you know? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, the four horsemen of meeting. We'll see. It'll be very interesting if they can dominate the intellectual landscape the way that the four horsemen of new atheism did. Well, well, what, you know, maybe it's the same, like, like Prejo was saying, the ground is fertile for this. I think as, so, as, because as, uh, <laughs> religion is bubbling up in a way that cannot yeah. be denied, you know. B values precondition A. Persig yeah. would say this is, you know, this is the ground of, this is where dynamic quality and where we are now are going to converge into something. And maybe this is one of the directions that, you know that we're going and i i just my intuition says so 
Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to continue well, to see. It's so coherent, you know, yeah. it's coherent. I mean, when you hear them talk, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey, isn't there a coherence and a meshing of minds and, a, and, a, and something beautiful coming together that feels real? Rather than like four guys, like maybe even two years ago, if they got together, it wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah, there's something powerful happening in the space. There's something powerful happening, and I think that's I think that's really exciting to yeah. be part of it in in yeah our respective ways. For sure, my children have just arrived home. It's going to get oh, loud here in, in just a second, sorry. so we're going to have to to stop there for today, Savila. Well, it was a nice long conversation, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really good to connect, and I look forward to future chats. Absolutely. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye. Hey, you reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.